Our greatest human adventure is the evolution of consciousness. We are in this life to enlarge the soul, liberate the spirit, light up the brain, and embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 244 of Embrace the Void, where there's a doings a transpiring. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking about talking about consciousness. Before we get to that, though, I want to mention that starting after this episode, the pod is going to go every other week for the rest of the summer. My wonderful wife slash editor and I are taking our puppy Volt and going back to work at the creative and performing arts camp that we met at back before the world ended. But the content must flow. So we've stockpiled episodes to drop over July and August, ending with an episode 250 that is extremely on brand. I'm planning to make some tweaks to the format to celebrate and keep things fresh. So stay tuned for those changes. And in the meantime, let's make with the meta introspection. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is JC Anthes, a PhD student in machine learning at the University of Chicago and co-founder of Sentience Institute. JC recently published a paper called Consciousness Semanticism, a Precise Eliminativist Theory of Consciousness. JC, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, void. Nice to be here. I'm excited about voids and philosophy, so this seems like a good place for me. Good, great. I'm, I'm excited. We connected on Twitter, the place that for everyone is a hellscape, except I have a lot of fun time finding people like you. So I'm excited to talk about this. I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, but we got onto like hard problem consciousness stuff. And you mentioned that you had this paper and I'm always looking for new takes on the hard problem. So before we get to the paper, though, do you want to let folks know a little bit about your background and like what drove you to feel like you needed to write a paper about the semantics of consciousness? Sure. I'm a fairly eclectic researcher. My origin story is in effective altruism. So I'm aiming to do the most good for all sentient beings in the long run future. I've historically mostly worked in social science. So running things like experiments and surveys, I'm currently more focused on machine learning and AI. So doing research into algorithmic fairness and causal AI, but I've always had an interest in philosophy and many of the most important questions for the future of sentient life involve philosophy, or at least that's their foundation. So I've read a lot of the literature, but in some sense, I'm a scientist in philosopher's clothing, as they say. And mm -hmm. I apologize if I, you know, miss the gun because of that. 
That's okay. I'm a philosopher who's been pretending to be a scientist recently, and it's been very weird on that end too. So I, I understand. But like, there's so much important interdisciplinary work that needs to be done on a lot, so many of these issues that it just feels so impossible to stay in one field and still have something meaningful to say about, you know, AI ethics or something like that. Yeah, I've been lately interested in the fundamentals of physics and Sabine Hassenfelder, uh, who wrote a great book called Lost in Math about how beauty has led physics astray, talks mm -hmm. about how at the current stage of theoretical physics and particle mm -hmm. physics, we just need to start mixing philosophy and science because they're abutting the same questions and there's no way of getting around it. She's not a philosopher herself, but she's making calls for that sort of pursuit. That's exciting. I, I almost I feel like I very rarely hear hard scientists making calls to do to mix in more <laughs> philosophy right it's often the opposite that like philosophy asked some good questions and then the hard scientists come in and fix them so you brought up effective altruism we, I, we've talked i've talked with a couple of people on, on here recently about effective altruism i'm going to have some more chats in the future and it's interesting how much that work is often overlapping with things like ethics, things like these, especially the AI ethics kinds of questions and the like long-termism stuff. So in that vein, I feel like it's useful when we're talking about things like the hard problem, things like defining consciousness, especially if we're going to do semantics, which is, you know, a whole separate level, right? It's I feel like it's valuable to tie our conversation down to like real consequences and make clear from the beginning, like what are the stakes of this issue? So for you personally, you know, like what do you think of as the stakes for ascribing consciousness? Why does it matter to distinguish between conscious and non-conscious beings? Yeah, the economist Tyler Cohen has recently talked about how more people are EAs than you would expect. And among young people, it's underappreciated right now how influential it's becoming. And it motivates a lot of us to go into AI and social science, but also philosophy in particular. And I think I'm interested in, you know, maximizing the net happiness, kind of the utilitarian aim for all sentient beings. And within that, you have the word sentience, you have the word beings. And that brings into a question exactly who's in the scope. So most of the practical implications, I think, have to do with that. So if you're trying to do the most good for the long-term future, you want to think about who are the beings who are going to exist, uh, how might they live good or bad lives according to what sort of being they are. So in the paper, I allude to two practical upshots that I still believe are kind of the most important ones. They hinge on a lot of other philosophical notions. So in particular, this idea mm -hmm. that who's conscious is at least a good mapping onto who matters morally. Even if you don't think it's the only criterion or if you think it's a sufficient but not necessary condition, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one of those upshots is that eliminativists tend to care more about small or weird minds. So if you think that we can observe who's conscious and who's not, if we can look at concrete features and understand that way, then you have to sort of say, well, small and weird minds like insects have a lot of the things that we operationalize consciousness as just like reinforcement learning, et cetera. So I think people mm. tend to, I don't think it's like a necessary logical consequence, but I think people tend to care more about those minds if they're an eliminativist. And then I think second, along with moral anti-realism, it leads you to put less likelihood on moral convergence in the far future. So if there's no fact of the matter about who's conscious and who's not, if you take this eliminativist or illusionist perspective, then you're less likely to think we'll figure things out and we can 
punt or pass the buck to future generations. And they'll solve these moral questions, perhaps over a period of long reflection, as the philosopher Toby Ord has put forth, or coherent extrapolated volition and other ideas in AI or indirect normativity, etc. And you more want to try to do that moral philosophy sooner, figure things out and more actively steer the future instead of just letting it steer itself. Interesting. All right. So I want to talk about both the sort of convergence side there, but I, I think we're on the same page on the like, a big piece of this is, you know, who matters, who's a part of the moral community. Why don't we, why don't we just clarify, we've done previous episodes on, you know, hard problems. I talked to Keith Frankish, who did a two-parter on his illusionism. So if folks are really not entirely clear on things like what you mean by eliminativism. Uh, they should definitely go back and check out that episode. But do you want to sort of like briefly give an example of an eliminativist view and why it would mean, like you said, that, you know, you're likely to care more about bugs or viruses or something like that? Yeah, eliminativist would be the general view that something in our common sense notion or folk psychology around consciousness is fundamentally wrong. Something's really missing. I think this often gets chalked down to consciousness doesn't exist or phenomenal consciousness doesn't exist. I don't think you have to load it with the terminology of existence. Sometimes it's convenient, but sometimes you want to sort of taboo that word and move to more specifics. But in general, it lends itself to uh, concrete operationalizations of what it means to be conscious and not. So instead of, for example, thinking about, oh, hey, that insect seems to have integration across different sensory domains. There seems to be a oneness or a, a unitary nature of their experience. And that indicates that there's an inner light in there, that there's something going on. Uh, you know, you could even think of it as a dualist notion or a Cartesian theater or something. If you think that's sort of a evidence of something else, then that's indirect. And that means you have to indirect, uh, sorry, you have to reason based on a bunch of other indirect notions. So for example, you might care a lot about neuroanatomy and just the fact that there's no neocortex in, in insects, for example, it might matter a lot to you. Evolutionary history, et cetera, uh, carbon versus silicon, you know, sort of all of the positive examples most people think of with consciousness are carbon-based. So maybe you just in general discount silicon-based ones. But I think that the more of an eliminativist you are, the more you point to specific features that tend to be present in lots of different minds. I see. Uh, yeah, so that makes sense to me, right? So you're, you're deflating the concept and so more things are going to fit into that category. Um, and then, so like it seems the question to me would be, so, so eliminativism is not necessarily going to be the same as um, whether or not we can test this is a question of whether or not we can test for consciousness, but there is going to be in theory, some overlap, right? If you are more, very eliminativist, it seems like you should have a reasonable test. Whereas if you're not, it seems like you might lean towards the, there is no, there's never going to be a proper test for consciousness, right? Is that how you understand yeah. it? But you could be okay. an eliminativist and say that your criterion for moral value in a mind is some really difficult to achieve notion. So for example, some uh -huh. sort of higher order theories or inner listener or some sort of uh -huh. self-modeling, you might think that it's really hard. And in fact, let's say only humans have it and no other animal species shows evidence of it. And you could still be an eliminativist in that sense. It just tends to correlate with going down right. to more bare bones features because I think it becomes hard to justify. I mean, we can get into these sort of examples, but like when you're on a roller coaster, when you're giving birth to a child and feeling these really intense emotional experiences, um, are you really doing that sort of self-modeling and higher order thought? But in theory, you mm. could go that direction. Okay, interesting. So yes, I, I agree with you that they don't necessarily overlap. Um, so then let me, let me ask you just to sort of get a sense of where we agree and disagree on some of the things related to this, and then we'll dive into um, 
you know, like the, the deeper parts of the philosophical debate. So this question of being able to test for consciousness, um, before we let, you know, get you to lay out your view here a little bit on your view, do you feel like there is ultimately going to be a test for consciousness or could be a test for consciousness at some point? Or how do you think about that problem? I think consciousness exists now as a vaguely defined term that mm -hmm. doesn't really exist and isn't testable in the sense that it's not clear what it would take for an entity to be conscious or not conscious. And every definition has some imprecision. You know, I can point to three dots on a piece of paper and say, is this a triangle, even though I haven't connected the lines between the dots? Or I can say, oh, it's not a triangle. It's actually just a drawing of a triangle, et cetera, et cetera. I think some imprecision is, is necessary, but there's a lot in consciousness and we act mm -hmm. as if there is precision. And when most people say a test for consciousness or a measurement of it, I think they're assuming more precision than actually exists. So no, I don't think there is a test with our current definitions, but I think just mm -hmm. as definitions of life and other concepts have evolved semantically over the centuries. I think our definition of consciousness will also evolve and we might be able to test for it at some point, but that'll be sort of testing for consciousness B instead of consciousness A, you know, not the sort of consciousness that we define today. And that's somewhat arbitrary taking that semantic leap. Right. So this is the kind of, your paper is a semantic account and an approach. So it is sort of focusing on ambiguities and problems with the definitional side of things and in theory the solutions would be to clarify our definitions right to make them to either make them you know equally precise to our expectations or alter our expectations to the vagaries of consciousness one or the other right yeah, it's like if early in human history, you knew that there was two different substances that we both called gold, but you didn't know exactly what differ what made the difference between elemental gold and fool's gold. And then you were to ask me, is there a test for whether it's really gold? I would say like, well, no, not at this current stage because we haven't really figured out what these two things are. But at mm -hmm. some point, we might decide to only call this one elemental gold gold. And we might okay. test the softness and be able to differentiate the two. But that doesn't mean huh. there was a right answer in early human history as to which one was gold. It just means that we decided at some point to make our definition more precise, as we tend to do as we better understand the world. I see. So on your view, then, you, we, we agree, it seems like that there is some version of consciousness that matters for moral consideration. Um, at present, we don't have a good way to test for it, which is not a great position to be in. And as you point out, that, that could raise convergence concerns that we can get into a little bit here. Can you say a little bit about like, how would you define the consciousness that matters morally? Um, is it different from the way, you know, some version of the way it's being defined? Or do you not have a full sense of like how we would accurately define what it is that really matters morally? Yeah, so this sort of hits the nail on the head, which is that I think the best way to semantically move forward, and this is more of a sociological question than a philosophical one, is to use consciousness, or in particular sentience, I think it's worth disentangling the two, but sentience as the way of describing what morally matters within minds. And by sentience, I'm just in rough terms, meaning uh, valenced experience. So this idea of happiness and suffering or positivity and negativity, because I think consciousness can also include things like perception. So the, the redness of red or visualizing an apple in your mind's eye, and then also thought. So having an inner monologue or, you know, 
saying a sentence sort of in your own mind. And I think most people think that those other sorts of consciousness don't really matter. Of course, like David Chalmers and some other people have raised the question and I think are sympathetic to the idea that, you know, Vulcans in this caricature of Star Trek matter, though, of course, Mm -hmm. canonically, Star Trek Vulcans do experience emotions. They're just very good at controlling them. Right. And it seems like emotions is not exactly the same thing as even what you're describing. What I would think of what you're describing as being like, I I call them value-laden phenomenal states, it seems to me, right? Suffering, flourishing, these kind of, even just like emotions would also count, right? It seems like happiness, pain, and pleasure, like very sort of thinner versions of those kind of things as well. But what we mean are states that like, to re you know to retake back the terms that were once used against us like to be doneness or to be avoidedness kind of built into them in a sense is that how does that does that look like sort of what you have in mind or how would you phrase those things i think this is a good exercise in sort of my my general philosophical approach which is these are semantic questions you know do mm-hmm. we want to use emotions to define this two dimensional spectrum as some psychologists like to talk about it where one dimension is positivity and negativity Uh, But another dimension is, for example, arousal. So this idea that you can be anxious and be very high arousal, but negative, or you can be excited and be very high arousal, but positive. Well, there's sort Mm -hmm. of a two by two or a two dimensional space in which emotions reside. There are other theories Uh of consciousness where they're more um, categorically different from each other, where you've more got, you know, 10 or 20 or a multitude of different emotions and they're all different in different ways. And they have some physiological characteristics, you know, high heart rate is in fact, a part of those emotions, etc. I think there are a lot of fine ways to like carve out that discursive space. The way I'm carving out is something like the 2D one, where there, at least there's an axis of positivity and negativity. And in mm-hmm. fact, I'm carving that out so broadly that I would say other conscious states that feel like they have valence or value-laden, to me, just like fit in as emotion. But if you don't want to mm-hmm. call them emotion, that's fine. I'm just being about positivity and negativity. Okay. Do you? Does your view take a position on things like you know, an individual who can achieve, you know, very sophisticated or high levels of inner happiness matters more than like a a very unsophisticated entity that has like a basic low level state of pleasure or something. No, I can certainly talk about like my own views of sort of what sentience should be or what I care about morally as a moral anti-realist. I can say how much I care about, you know, utility monsters or or others, higher pleasures, lower pleasures, but none of that's uh, a part of this view per se. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so let's let's talk about a little bit of the details of your theory. Um you say that like so, uh, let, me, let me ask this question first, right? Um it seems to me when talking about like eliminativism versus non-eliminativism, when it comes to consciousness, whether we can reduce it down in some kind of way, I personally have the intuition that like subjectivity or phenomenal consciousness or what it's likeness, whatever the thing is that we're talking about that like makes the hard problem seem hard is different from every other kind of emergent property that I know of in the sense that like, it has a subjective element, whereas the other emergent properties, as far as we can tell, ha- have no subjective element to them. Do you know what I mean? So like we have, um, you know, the emergence of medium sized dry goods from quantum physics, for example, right? I don't think there's any reason to assume that just because, you know, I'm made up of something that appears dense, that that brings with it a subjective quality that has that creates a hard problem. So even life, for example, I don't think creates a hard problem, it seems like in the same way that 
inner experience does. What is your take on that kind of question or concern? Yeah, I think Chalmers put it as, you know, consciousness cries out for explanation in a way that all these other things like life or wetness or brightness or heat do not. Um, I think that the difference people are getting at in more concrete, eliminativist terms is that if you sort of lined up all emergent properties, I mean, I can gripe about emergent, but let me not do that right now. But if you sure. lined up all, all of these properties in terms of like distance from ourselves, distance from the observer, um, consciousness and related notions would be closest to the observer. And that like is a kind of weird spot to be like reasoning gets weird. Like, um, for mm -hmm. example, how long are sort of the chains of logic that you have to construct to make conclusions about it? Um, people say like you trust your eyes uh, when you're doing science because you're counting on the fact that when you looked at that measurement apparatus, it was correct. And with with consciousness or other claims about internal states, you don't have to even make those logical leaps. I think there's like a debate around fallibilism and like whether it's it's actually zero logical leap to make statements about I think therefore I am or whether mm. there's some, you know, modus ponens, just some something very simple going on. Um, but in general, I would agree that they're unique in being the closest to observation. I, I wouldn't frame that as subjectivity or something um, loaded in, in uh, non-eliminativist terms. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure what term we would want to swap in there. But the bringing up the cogito, I had a similar sort of question in the eye in the sense of like, I, I don't think the cogito itself works because it tries to prove too much. But I think there's like a deflated version of it that's like, you know, someone uh, subjectivity is being experienced. If we want to even remove the eye from the sentence, right, we can just say like experience is occurring. <laughs> And then we say, like, therefore, experience exists, it seems like. Even if we're wrong about everything about the mechanisms that goes into that experience, it seems like we can't be wrong that experience is occurring. Does your view sort of agree with that? Or how does that fit with your position? Yeah, my view breaks down two senses of the word consciousness. One mm -hmm. is this. One is consciousness as self-reference. It's mm -hmm. a, a very neutered, uh, a very contentless reference. And it's just the fact that there seems to be no other property in the world that you can make that sort of direct, um, I don't even want to call it inference, but direct statement, as you said, deflated in some way to really take everything out. That doesn't seem to work for anything else. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's fine. And like, that's the Mott of consciousness uh, and the like canonical Mott and Bailey of, you know, there's a castle and people retreat to their castle, but then have the, that, that's a, called a Mott and they have this broader Bailey. And this is right. a logical fallacy where people talk about a Mott, but then make claims about a, a Bailey and, and act as if it's more than it is. So I think this mm -hmm. Bailey is the broader sense of consciousness as a property that eliminatist and illusionists, I think like me and Frankish are critiquing, which is where okay. you get into notions of like, uh, is and this AI conscious or is this insect conscious having a matter of fact answer? I think that's where you get into problematic territory. And I think the current literature doesn't disentangle these two things. And that's the cause of a lot of confusion. Yeah, great. This is the next thing I was going to ask you was to, to sort of parse out those two distinctions. So I'm glad you, you brought that in there. So then let me ask, it seems to me that the self-reference one, the very, the Mott one, as you put it, still generates a hard problem. Um, do you agree or do you feel like there isn't a hard problem if as long as we're meaning that thin definition? I don't think there's a hard problem. So, so what would be the thing that seems like we can't figure out? Like, what is the hard problem there to you? The hard problem there to me seems to be there is 
an, an inner world of experience, quote unquote, that I am having, that it seems reasonable to infer that rocks and things aren't having. Um, but that inner thing, in it, there's no way to reconcile it with, you know, do you, I, I think of this a lot of times in like Nagel's sort of terms that like, there's no way to reconcile the objective external world with the inner subjective world in a way that makes sense of how they interact and can can coexist essentially um that to me is the problem yeah to me most of like the phrases you had in that sentence about like mm -hmm. oh it's something rocks probably don't have um are more than that self-reference like you're already expanding it and that's why you're running into challenges i think what we just said about self-reference about it being contentless it being this i think therefore i am it being the closest thing to observation i think we've basically done 98 percent of the conceptual work on figuring it out so i don't think there's something missing there and i think when you're talking about the things that are missing that's where you're venturing into consciousness as property so do you think that rocks have self may or may not have self-referential consciousness? So the question there is like, if a rock were to say, I think therefore I am, and let's say like, you know, you only put in enough neural circuitry for it to, to make that statement and maybe to, to, to have a little, I don't know. It's so hard to have these discussions without invoking a bunch of things, but you know, know. really the bare minimum of saying that, but not having anything else going on, having no other mental circuitry. Um, mm -hmm. would that rock be like right or wrong in some sense? Would it be able to make that statement? Would it be able to be a hundred percent confident in that? I think that just like is, is part of the reason I don't identify as a fallibleist or non-fallibleist. Like it depends on sort of how you construct those notions and what does it mean to be fully confident in those things, especially if you're lacking all that other circuitry. But I think when you're asking about consciousness of self-reference for a rock, you have to load into that rock some ability to make the self-reference. And if not, then no, I don't think it has consciousness of self-reference. Well, there's nothing mysterious about that to me. Like that's just, I'm just trying to do some. I wouldn't say that it needs that. the ability, for example, though, you know, so let's say we have a really low level organism that has, um, see, I'm not even sure I like the term self-reference here because what I have in mind here is very thin in the sense of it's just experiences are occurring, therefore we can't deny that experiences are occurring. We can't say anything about the experience, the experiencer, I don't think. You can't infer anything from that at least initially. But it does seem to me that we, we can say, for example, um, I am definitely an experiencer and my laptop is 99.9% .9 likely to not be an experiencer right or what do you what do you think about that i don't think there are likelihoods here in the sense that i don't know what it would mean to be true or false for the laptop to be an experiencer i think this is because you're making it as like a first person statement and again you're not making it as like a property again as soon as you bring in like does the rock have this like you're, you're talking about a broader notion as in like i just think you're bringing in things that are that are deviating from our initial statement of this as super contentless as first person there's one example it's like another mm -hmm. way that aluminivists like to talk about this is it's like defining a table by it's this thing right in front of me or the chair that I'm sitting on and not telling you anything else about a table or not telling you anything else about a chair and then trying to ask you questions about, you know, I, I go to my bedroom and I put my laptop on the bed and I start working on it. Is that now a table? I it's just like I can't assign probabilities to that. I just I have one example. I don't have a property yet. Uh, yeah, I guess I it seems like a weird sort of a 
approach to the question, right? So it seems to me you and I right now could have a functional conversation about which things have consciousness for the purpose of assigning um, moral status, as we were talking about, you know, tie it back to our stakes here to keep this grounded, right? Um, we might have hard questions, you know, we might try have difficulties about, you know, are they insects or something like that, but we'd have at least easy cases by which we could agree if you were going to decide between my life or the life of my laptop, right? Does Do you feel like it's a, a wash or do you feel like there's a good reason to prioritize me because you think I'm conscious and it's not? I think there are good reasons to me. I don't think there are stance-independent reasons, but we don't have to dive into moral realism here. I, I mean, I'm that... always going to dive into moral realism, <laughs> but like, but, but like, I guess, I guess my point is you're an effective altruist. Your goal is to give actionable advice, right? So your consciousness model at the end of the day at some point needs to be able to tell me where do I prioritize my ethical energies, right? So at some point I need an answer on you know, how how do I know whether the rock, you know, whether I have to preserve the well-being of the rock as well as my well-being when I'm, you know, making choices on how to act? Yeah, two things to say there. One is that even if you have a bunch of positive and a bunch of negative examples, you know, all humans and all rocks, let's say, I still don't think that gets you a property in the sense that the reason that we're, for example, in machine learning, able to give you examples of dog images and examples of cat images and then differentiate it is because we know that when we talk about dogs, we really have some behind the curtain definition that has to do with certain sets of pixels and in fact, what those pixels refer to. And we're able to, for example, figure out like dimensions or features of those images that we're just approximating by having a sample of data. There's some distribution that sample is drawn from, but when we're sort of constructing our own understanding standing from the ground up in the case of consciousness, we don't get to have those behind the curtains definitions because we're figuring it all out on our own. We're not inferring what some label or did or what atoms existed that we're taking photos of with cameras. So I think that's one, one, one challenge for this. Um, the mm -hmm. other aspect is that, um, I'm very happy as a moral anti-realist or a consciousness illuminist to talk about concrete questions of um, who do I care about and who do I think you should care about in a stance dependent sense of like based on sort of your fundamental approach to the topic, just building from there. Um, I do think that like when I assign moral value to different minds, I have a few concrete things uh, in mind. One is reinforcement learning, as we alluded to earlier. Another is moods. So like the, the, um, integration of someone's experience and the fact that if you shake up some honeybees, uh, they don't just become agitated and sort of upset, but they in fact become more pessimistic about the world. If you then show them an ambiguous liquid that might be sweet or might be bitter, they're more likely to guess that it's bitter. Uh, this is something mm -hmm. distinct from reinforcement learning, I think. And sure. then there's integration. A, a kind so of like stable internal set, you know, set of, um, Features. I'm trying. I'm trying to find non, you know, neutral terms in which to call these things. But yes, I know what you mean about yeah. moods, like moods versus emotions. And emotions come and go, but a mood is something that could be very stable for a long period of time. Yeah, in particular, it's intertwined with your like rationality, your your mm -hmm. assessment of the world, and and not just uh, no longer just valence or emotional terms. And then I think like integration matters, and I think general complexity matters. Integration, as in like phi and integrated information theory, how much the sum uh, the the whole was more than the sum of its parts. And then complexity, like you know, with current machine learning models that do have reward functions, they have reinforcement learning, but they're super simple. There's no like mesolimbic system like we have in our brain. There's just like ones and 
zeros of whether it got the task right or wrong and something like stochastic gradient descent to learn. Like those are the sort of concrete operationalizations that I would go into. And like we have a blog post at Sentience Institute that lists a bunch more other things that people think are reasonable. And I think we can have very good conversations, empirical conversations about those. Just none of those things are facts of the matter about who's conscious and who's not. I see. Do you think those things are testable, generally speaking? Do you think we can we can like assess people in terms of their moral status based on those features? Yeah, uh, Phi, for example, you know, has some decent math behind it in integrated information theory. I think it's vague. I think reinforcement learning, moods, and I think complexity is probably the easiest one to measure. Okay, so let me let me see if I can frame where you're at, and then then we can press forward here. So we have this distinction between this kind of thin, you know, mere experience definition. Um, which I, I still think creates a separate hard problem than the property definition, but we'll, we'll put a pin in that for a second. And it seems like what you're saying here is when you talk about what matters for you, you know, stance dependently consciousness wise, it's a kind of consciousness as property. It's not the thin kind. Or, or would you say that what the things you were just describing there are in some way the self-referential version? It's a property in the sense that I'm predicating it of things. I'm attributing it to okay. or assigning it to things. Um, I want to be clear that it's like not a way of saying, oh, there actually is a way in which consciousness does exist, et cetera. Like I'm, I'm doing that semantic evolution that we talked about. I'm taking uh, our definition of life and no longer being vague about it and saying what I want to treat life as in my utopian world is a homeostasis and reproduction. And I come up with mathematical formulas for those things. And then I decide whether viruses are alive based on that. So it's pretty removed. And, and I have to be clear that it's it's an eliminativist notion. Okay. Uh, so so I, I want to spend a little time then trying to get clear on this consciousness as property concept. Um, it sounds a little to me, um, having, you know, like talked to Keith and things like that, it sounds like sort of the distinction you're making here is a little bit between almost like the weak versus strong illusionism distinction, which for folks who are not familiar, you know, the weak version of illusionism, which he, he says is equivalent to a weak version of realism is, you know, there is phenomenal consciousness, but the mechanism is obscure to us. And so we may not understand how it actually works or what its actual nature is. We could be fallible about, it's a kind of fallible position about the, the inner workings of that phenomenal consciousness. Whereas he says in the paper, at least, um, you know, strong illusionism is the rejection of phenomenal consciousness but I feel like oftentimes that cashes out as a, really a kind of weak illusionism where he's rejecting key properties that have been ascribed to consciousness over the course of this debate by people like myself, not necessarily me, but like people on my side of things, which would be things like, you know, qualia, basically um, permanent or, or, or um, you know, fully transparent uh, private inner properties or something like that. So just trying to help people who haven't um, been familiar with all this stuff catch up a little bit. But how does does that accurately sort of connect up in any way with what you have in mind here? Or how would you sort of rephrase that to make sense of the consciousness's property? I think the mapping would have to be that, um, and Keith Frankish very graciously gave me feedback on the paper. So we discussed a bit of this sort of thing, though not mm -hmm. Lincoln Strong in particular. I think Keith Strong Frankish is great and will give everyone feedback on everything. He's wonderful. He is awesome, including on Twitter. So yeah. 
the strong illusionism, I think, applies to consciousness as property. Um, I ran the consciousness as self-reference by Keith, and I think originally I had written consciousness as observation. And he was actually one of the reasons I shifted from that wording, because observation just, it feels too much like like quality or phenomenology or subjectivity, etc., which was a very reasonable critique. I think it would be like a super strong illusionism to say that not even the consciousness as self-reference uh, exists. So to say that there's no thing that that's closest to observation on that spectrum and arguably infallible because it is the self-reference or is the observation itself so we didn't have a lengthy discussion about that but i think that's how it would map and again i like all of my views are meant to be based on like precise definitions that i've established in advance and then like i draw logical conclusions from those i'm trying to not argue from any sort of intuition um which means that i think you could say that these are features. And in fact, like Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy gives like four definitions of qualia. And if I recall correctly, only the fourth one talks about ineffability or inaccessibility in some way. So mm -hmm. arguably, you know, some people will say that qualia is even in this batch. I think like qualia quietism is a reasonable view, uh, which isn't super popular, but is the idea that like qualia is just too vague and fuzzy and poorly used for us to even say that we should eliminate it or see it as real to be an eliminatist or non-eliminatist. And we should instead mm -hmm. just sort of be quiet on the whole debate and i think that's a fine view too it's just a different way of carving up the terms before drawing logical conclusions from that i see so this this does feel similar to a problem that i feel like i have trying to make sense of the illusionist position um which is that i guess maybe, maybe it's just you know we're gonna just be passing in the night in terms of mott and bailey's but i feel like there's almost a mott and bailey from the illusionist side as well where you know your strong position is weak illusionism, right? The idea that this thing is more weird than we think it is. We don't really fully understand it. We should be, you know, tentative, hesitant in our claims about it or something like that, which seems plausible, but doesn't to me resolve the hard problem because as I, I think, you know, I, I really think this is our sticking point is I think that the mere referential kind of phenomenal consciousness, not, not consciousness's property, is enough to generate a hard problem. And I think, in my experience, when you read the illusionism stuff, they sometimes are saying, we're going to get rid of that, or we're going to we're going to reduce. Well, so here's what I'll say. I think they go both ways on this, right? I think they both say, I, I, we're going to, you know, get rid of phenomenal consciousness, but not get rid of phenomenal consciousness. And what that cashes out as is... Uh, we have problems with certain properties that are assigned to qualia. Um, and it seems like that's that's a bait and switch because I think people like me can happily say, I have problems with the things that are assigned to qualia as well. But as long as we have this thin consciousness as self-reference or consciousness as experience um, definition, we still have a hard problem that's not being solved or it's going to have to be worked around in some kind of way. This is helpful. I feel like we're getting somewhere in particular mm -hmm. um, when I've ran this paper by other eliminativists and illusionists when we got together for our secret parties to debate mm -hmm. the future of right. philosophy. Uh, we, <laughs> your your no, P-Zombie parties, I, I assume those are called? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're not very fun in any stance-independent <laughs> sense. We, but they probably feel fun to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, in every way that they uh, can. So... Right. Everyone was agreeing that we're not refuting this 
mere self-reference. I mean, the, Keith Frankish and, you know, people have their individual gripes with like what term are you using exactly? But I think there's some notion of, of closest to the observer. And maybe this is something that we should write another paper on. Somebody should. Um, but like, what explanation does that need? Does that cry out for explanation in the full sense? And I do think both uh, parties, as you said, both sides have been guilty of passing around Martin Bailey's and being vague about terminology and switching between these two things. And arguably, there's a lot more than two things. Again, there's like four definitions of qualia. There are different notions of self-reference. There's fallible and infallible notions. And I think this is there aren't many areas of philosophy where I'm like optimistic to see more people carving out taxonomies, but I think this would mm -hmm. be one. Um, mm -hmm. But in general, yeah, I would just push back again and say like, I don't see where that cries out for explanation. I don't see where the self-reference invokes a hard problem. I don't see what we're missing from that any more than we're missing things from other concepts. So another way to put this and a good general framing, I think for this debate is that I don't, I am also an eliminativist when it comes to, analogously phrased versions of everyday properties like wetness or brightness or life, et cetera. And I, I'm happy to say I'm an eliminativist on those things because I don't think people go about in their usage as treating those things as real in the way that they treat consciousness as real. Um, so I, I would happily you know, refute and write papers and argue against uh, life if there were philosophers out there publishing papers and, and books about why AI can't be alive and therefore it doesn't matter morally or something. So I do mm -hmm. think it's an analogous situation to those. And in particular, I just don't think there's a unique crying out for explanation in consciousness. And that seems like uh, the crux. I see. So I guess um, what seems like the difference to me is when we're talking about life, for example, right? The debate seems to be more over here's a couple of observable, testable properties we're not sure which arrangement of them we should be the, be the thing that we draw life around, right? Like we're trying to, you know, maybe it's, you know, um, self-directed behavior, goal-directed behavior, genuine goal-directed behavior, all, you know, like possible options, right? But it seems that like most of them, and there are some, maybe, maybe some versions of, of life definitions that would necessarily involve consciousness, but if we just talk about the life definitions that don't involve consciousness, um, those all seem sort of testable, observable, studyable in a scientific way that the subjective thing, it seems to me, or or the, you know, the self-reference, the thin version of consciousness doesn't seem to be. And like you talked about, we could try to talk about external features that are likely to predict it, um, but it doesn't seem like we would know that they are reliably. So like you're doing AI work. Do you feel like we're going to have a good consciousness test before we have an entity that can say, I am conscious in a way that feels compelling? I mean, directly to that question, it would go yeah. back to the fact that I don't think consciousness exists. And I think we have to decide on some operationalization before we can test it. But if we do ah. decide on that, then yes, I think we can test it without self-report if our test doesn't happen to contain self-report. But in general, I'm, I'm still not sure like what, is unexplained to you about our brief discussion of consciousness self-reference like what was missing from that what 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 question did we not have an answer to i guess it's not so so i, I don't think there's anything missing from understanding it as experience so we have this question of like why is there experience versus not experience right and maybe that's a you know that's a, that's a way into the larger question of like Again, it, to me, it comes back to the question of wh why is there subjective and not just objective, 
right? Like we could have a universe that was just objectively observable things, but we have this one thing that appears to not be objectively observable. Like what other properties it has or not, it seems to me that consciousness as I, in the thin self-referential sense, is not objectively observable, wouldn't be genuinely testable by objective proxies in any kind of way. We can, de we can define consciousness in some other, you know, consciousness as property kind of way, where we say it's, you know, like you were saying, um, you know, ability to do metacognitive thinking or something, and maybe we can test that in some kind of way. But the simply like, how do I know that there is an experience happening inside of the AI, you know, entities world, the way there is one happening inside of mine. That's the separate sort of hard problem to me, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad we're diving into this particular, cause I think it's hmm. important and underexplored in the literature. I don't think that it needs some outside um, test to um, be fully understood. So I think in particular that like if you build up an assemblage of definitions and, you know, there's this challenge of the dictionary is circular, you're defining words with other words. Uh, if you construct something like that, like there's going to be something that sort of is is deep and is in the core of, again, one end of that spectrum where it's like right at observation and you can't infer to it. It's just there. And that's like sort of the nature of you could call it semantic systems. It's very similar to like Gödel's incompleteness theorem in mathematics where you have mm -hmm. liar's paradox and things like that that are just like a part of mathematical axiomatic systems. Like you're going to have statements in any theorem builder, you know, like girl numbers and things like that, where that statement says the statement is a lie and therefore it's like neither true or false within your uh, mathematical framework. I think this is just like fully explained as, as a part of our semantic systems, or you could say a part of our epistemological systems. And it doesn't need to be the sort of thing that we can test from the outside in particular, because it's not a property. It's, it's defined as one example. It's defined as I think, therefore I am not as things that think are. And if it were defined as the latter, then I think it would be the sort of property that again, to exist would need um, some sort of test. But I think that's consciousness as a property and explicitly not consciousness as self-reference. Okay, so it does seem to me that to say things that think things that think are doesn't seem to me to go into the level of consciousness as property. That does seem to me to still just be a, a very thin sense of consciousness, not one that like requires further justification. The way that it seems like, if I want to assign more robust properties to it. I would have to do something there, I guess. Because like, for example, we could just say that that's a process that's occurring. We don't even have to make it an object or make it objectival or something. We can just say like an experiential flow is happening or something like that, right? Um, so I, 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 I wonder how we resolve that problem. And I guess I also think that is not resolvable down to certain kinds of metacognitive processes. So I've seen, for example, you know, some um, AI eliminativist writing will talk about like consciousness as we think about it, this weird illusory thing is like a system that emerges from a sufficiently meta complex system. If you have enough recursive, you know, the system looking back on itself enough times, essentially, right, you get 
the experience of phenomenal consciousness as I'm trying to understand it, right? I know those are loaded terms, but I'll use my own terms, at least when I'm talking about my own experiences. And I think um, I'm, I'm unconvinced that that's all that's going on there, or it seems like I would need evidence or some sort of proof that that's sufficient for what is going on, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the scientific literature is rife with scientists saying, oh, it's clear if you think hard enough or look closely enough at this property that uh, if you have enough recursion, then you get consciousness. Or IIT, mm -hmm. integrated information theory, if you have enough integration, you get consciousness. Or symmetry theory right. of valence, if you have enough symmetry. Uh, active inference, if you are an agent who's going about with expectations and um, a worldview and you're aligning those, then you're experiencing positivity, et cetera, et cetera. And they just like never fill in the blank. It's, it's sort of like an is-ought problem of they're just never explaining how they make that leap i think this is like you know i have my own gripes about scientists that are separate from my gripes about philosopher and this would probably be mm -hmm. number one on my list of, of gripes about scientists but i think that for for uh things think therefore they are um that is a property in the sense that you no longer you know you as somebody who's able to make that statement no longer has non-inferential access to its truth in the sense that it, it involves multiple entities and you are one entity and therefore you're having to make some modus ponens, some kind of logical leap, some kind of experiencing things with their eyes. Um, you might think that's entirely a logical claim and that it doesn't involve any need any empirical verification, but then it still involves, you know, premises and conclusions and some sort of logic, mm -hmm. which then just takes it away from the same experience. And it's no longer right next to observation. Now it's maybe still pretty close to observation, uh, but no longer the closest thing to it. And I think that's why that ends up being consciousness's property. Okay. I understand. Um, so I think it's, it might be valuable to try to just sum up a little bit sort of where we've been because we've covered a lot of sort of complicated ground here. And then maybe you can tell me a little bit about like what you think comes of this position. So just to see if I'm understanding, just to mirror your, your comments here a little bit, my sense of my takeaway here is you don't think that there's like some objective fact of the matter about how consciousness is actually X and X is actually observable. You think there's a bunch of different like potential definitions and you're interested in disambiguating them, figuring out which definitions are more or less useful and then testing for those definitions. Is that sort of the idea here? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, that's my overall approach. I mean, we, we sort of skipped the core argument of the paper and sort of my approach to philosophy. And I think one thing that comes from this is that mm -hmm. we should have more precise semantics and formal argumentation from those semantics. And I think that's how most philosophy should be done. And in fact, I think that would pretty quickly expose most philosophical problems like free will and morality and personal identity as pseudo problems. Um, and mm -hmm. I'd be a reductionist or eliminativist, or in particular, I'm trying to set up this infrastructure of semanticism, which is really focused on those, those precise semantics. I think all those problems would just crumble away. But the core argument of the paper is, is is not anything about what we should sort of replace current notions of consciousness with. So the fact that we should have those concrete operationalizations, it's instead just a core argument for why consciousness as currently conceived in, I would say, most of the philosophical literature doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And in particular, you know, the, the to, to taboo the word exist and say it more simply, I'm claiming right. that current definitions are imprecise, usage is precise, this is inconsistent, this is a problem, right. this has two practical upshots, and it's something that 
undermines a lot of philosophical notions, in particular the hard problem, though I think uh, a direction worth exploring is your argument that in even just self-reference might invoke a certain hard problem that might be unexplainable. I think it's unclear of what importance that is if it doesn't get to questions around, you know, is this AI conscious or is this insect conscious? Because that seems to be where the moral upshots are. Yeah, great. So I, I think my sense is I fully agree with you that we need more precision here, that these are, you know, cluster, mongrel, what are the all sorts of vague, you know, ways we could talk about the problems with this concept and we need to disambiguate it. Um, I think, I guess my sense is you're going to end up, even if you're, this paper isn't taking a hard position on exactly what things we want to replace it with when we are looking at the things that we're assessing, it does seem to me that you're going to look towards things that are objectively observable um, in some kind of way. Whereas I lean more towards, I think, you know, because I end up in a Mysterian kind of place, I don't think that we're going to know that an AI is conscious um, before we're, you know, having an AI that's acting like it's conscious enough to convince us. And at that point, you know, I've talked to some other folks about this who lean more towards that we're not going to have a test view. There's a lot of a like, we're going to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, we're going to like err on the side of caution because we're not going to have, because the thing that does seem to matter to us for consciousness, even if we're going to, you know, clarify our terms, the thing that we want to clarify it down to is specifically a thing that is, as far as we can tell, is not going to be testable for, right? There's lots of things that are testable that may matter to some extent, but they're not going to totally convince us that it's this is actually the thing we're worried about. Um, and that would still have real world consequences, right? That wouldn't mean, you know, we just don't get to ask these questions. It means that we have to figure out a, a pragmatic kind of um, workaround. So, does that make sense as sort of like uh, a slight contrast to your position, but accepting a lot of the like central arguments about vagueness? Yeah, there's a weird convergence between the two ends of the illuminativism and non-illuminativism spectrum where both mm -hmm. ends say we're not going to know who's conscious. And it's in some sense, both opposing the middle notion, which is uh, I have this pet theory of consciousness or we're going to figure it out and then we're going to assess who's conscious and who's not and it's going to be definitive and it's mm -hmm. stance independent and it's correct. I mean, stance independence becomes a weird notion with consciousness, but um, right. I do think that is a lot of common ground. Stance independence in the sense that, uh, you know, we uh, somebody is conscious and... Uh, it's a fact of the matter that they're conscious, you know, separate from anyone's observations of that, including maybe themselves if they have some weird kind of blindsight or something, right? Exactly. Um, great. So so we're running a little short on time, but I want to ask a little bit about consequences here. What are the bullets that you feel like you have to bite with your view? Are there any, or is it that like, because you don't specify your what definition of consciousness we need to maybe move towards that like, there aren't any major bullets to bite with this view? There's an overarching bullet to bite, but I think it's pretty singular in the sense that you know you're not going to have to bite further bullets. And it's that you have to accept this sort of exacting, semantic, precise, you know, we can no longer treat things as primitives type view. Um, Dave Chalmers, who gave me feedback on the paper and I, I hope is okay with me uh, saying this, you know, said that existence might be a sort of primitive and maybe we can't put out a specific definition in particular when we try to draw lines around what sort of things exist but might be epistemically inaccessible that we couldn't know even with your omniscient and i know you have views on this um mm -hmm. that's like a weird territory to 
go round. Like I don't know of a definition someone's put forth for existence that navigates that in a way that like satisfies all intuitions. And I think this is generally true in philosophy that like the goal is often to you know, in social science, we'd say do a linear regression, like a line of best fit in your scatter plot and try to minimize the differences between your data points and the line that you're drawing. And you're just never mm-hmm. going to get something that fits all of those unless you take this incredibly intuition, intuitionist position where you really like overfit your data points and you just follow your intuition on any particular case, but then accept the fact that you're going to be very non-parsimonious and et cetera. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that is a bullet to buy it. I think it, it involves like not knowing many things in the sense that you sort of Anytime you want to view on a new philosophical position, you've got to really take your time to construct some definitions. You can't just do a hand wave to intuition, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. That is costly in some sense. But I think if you bite that one bullet, you've, I don't say solved philosophy, but I think made a lot of progress. So it's like a particularist versus generalist kind of problem, right? Like the Mysterians like me are going to, you know, like you say, it's going to be a case by case and it's going to be a lot of um, fudging. Whereas you're trying to like, lay some rules down some guy you know rule you know really clear markers down ahead of time in the hopes that they will reduce those kinds of costs down the line yeah there's a notion of lumpers and splitters i think it originates mm-hmm. in biology but some people like to lump together a lot of different categories vaguely and some people are very exacting in splitting and definitely semanticism is a, is a splitting type view mm-hmm. fair enough and you know if we had more time i, I mean we could talk a little bit about this in the vip chat but like I think it's fair, I would assume, that this view isn't necessarily going to take a hard stance on any philosoph- any ethical questions until you suss out your consciousness definitions or something like that, right? We don't immediately know just from, from demands for clarity that certain um, ethical assumptions are going to go out the window or something like that. Yeah, one tangent to go on would be this problem of logical uncertainty or logical induction, which is popular in some areas of machine learning, which is this idea of how do we reason about things that uh, we don't know only because we haven't thought about them long enough. Like, how do you un- mm-hmm. assign uncertainty to the Googleth digit of pi, which we haven't computed? Like, we sort of know there's an answer. And you know right. that it's weird to say that there's 50% chance because it's not like it actually might be one or the other. There is a fact of the matter about it. And I think in this case, we can still reason and we can use those same heuristics or I hesitate to ever say neural correlates of consciousness. We can use things like evolutionary mm-hmm. history um, to make... Mm-hmm heuristic approximations when we mm-hmm. lack the object level understanding as we do in 2022. Okay. So that, that makes sense. Um, so I, I'd like to wrap up with the final question before I torture people. What are resources that you would recommend for folks who want to dive a little deeper into this that were particularly helpful to you in trying to make sense of this problem? Yeah, this is the only paper I've written in uh, on the topic and I cite you know, the canonical papers, Consciousness Explained by Daniel Dennett. Uh, of course, people call that Consciousness Explained Away sometimes. Um, Keith Frankis's work, <laughs> I think, is great. I haven't heard that. That's good. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think those are canonical for the more empirical side of things and the social science and sort of what should we do when we think about the future of sentient beings. That's our research focus at Sentience Institute. So our website has a blog that we try to keep pretty accessible as well as some longer reports on related topics. Okay, great. And um, we should get you back on at some point to talk about the other side of the stuff that you do, the um, effective altruism stuff. Always interested to hear more conversations about that. Um, So unfortunately, though, that means it's now time for me to torture you. This is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. 
So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things and you are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? You don't get to hedge. You don't get to use any semantics. You don't get to define your terms in any kind of way. Your only options are real or not real. Okay. Okay. This sounds like uh, Tyler Cohen, I think, has something similar at the end of his podcast. Oh, has he? Which one's Tyler Cohen? Uh, I don't know. He's an economist. And I think he asked people like, yay or nay, or like, are these things good or bad? Oh, I see. No. Yeah. Similar, I think, more torturous. Um, But. (laughs) Let, we'll see right. how it goes for you, right? Let's, um, let's let's try it out. So, I, you know, especially for philosophers, I always have to ask at the beginning: um, is is there anything in the universe that's real? I used to say, is anything real, but now I have to say, are there any? Is there anything in the universe? I guess that's real because otherwise, they're like anything—the thing itself that is anything. Um, yes. So, yes. Okay. Real. Okay. Great. Some people they'll some people say no to that question. So. Uh, we like to try, we like to check ahead of time. So, real or not real, the external world. I can only say real or not real. Two only options. real or not real. Only options. Real over fifty percent. Okay, real. Colors, real or not real. Not real. Phenomenal consciousness, not real. Free Easy. will. Uh, not everyone real. gets one gimme when they do the episode like this. <laughs> so yeah, free will, not real. No free will. No. Okay. Okay. I'm glad we're at least on the same page there. Uh, selves or persons? Not real. Genders? Not real. Races? Not real. Species? Real. Morality? Not real. Rights? Not real. Knowledge? Real? god or gods not real society not real money not real numbers Mm. real Mm. fictional characters real holes like a hole in the ground real chairs real sandwiches not real science not real natural laws not real beauty not real love not real causality not real and finally time not real all right you survived how do you feel I tried to communicate as much as I could with my subtle intonation. So I hope people got the paragraphs of text that I was sending with my mind. All the layers of not real that went into claiming that God's not real, but fictional characters are. There are many layers, you know, the the beginning intonation of the word, the middle intonation, the end of it, you got to pick it all up. It's like Mm -hmm. a Mandarin. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. It's very tonal. I I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, So, well, thank you for letting me torture you and thank you for, uh, helping explain the semantic side of things, philosophy of language, not my strong suit, but um, I feel like we got somewhere useful on that. Um, and I'm excited to chat a little bit more about our disagreements after in the VIP area. But for the moment, do you want to let um, normies know where they can find you and your content one more time? Twitter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Twitter, JCAnthus or sentienceinstitute.org. 
Great. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, Christopher Hammock. And thanks to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding. This name is for display purposes only. Please contact a service representative for more information. Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard Neil Polzin, Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, whatever your consciousness is, you are the void and the void is you. 